morning, everyone. Can everyone remain standing while we read, read God's word? We're reading passage John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as that day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do not, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciples whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, but he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. And bread, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. And although although that there were so many, many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come on and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. That this, were, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. That's right. Uh, let's pray together. Um, dear Lord, just um, thank you that you are a good, good father. Thank you that um, that you've revealed who you are to us. And that, that you're not defined by what we think a father looks like or, or what we think love looks like, but but you have revealed yourself, and you have uh, just been found uh, to be a good father. Lord, um, I pray that that would, that would rest on our hearts today. Uh, God, I, I pray that you would uh, speak through me today as we speak, or as I speak, and as we open your word. Um, in your name, amen. Hello, church. My name is Caleb Garrett, if we haven't met. Um, so I'm normally doing some music stuff up here, and I, I work with the youth as well. So you may be wondering, you know, Jimbo looks healthy, <laughs> so why is, and he's here, so why are you up here? Um, and this weekend we had, a, well, it's because we had, a, we had an event called Deep End Weekend, hence the t-shirt. Um, and if, you're, if you've been in church maybe a long time, the, the, uh, the lingo is kind of like a Disciple Now weekend. It was like a mini camp for our youth this weekend, and we just had a great time. Um, we heard from uh, Brody Holloway, who's the, who's the pastor at the camp that we attend. Um, so he was there, and some other, some other people we had met before through, through that camp were here. And he challenged us from Psalm 23, uh, just with the idea that, that the Lord is my shepherd. And that when, when, we, when we read like a scripture like that, that that's, that's not talking about a God who's distant, but actually a God who's a father. The Lord is my shepherd, and that's personal. Uh, and it was just, it was a great weekend. Um, 
Uh, some, of our, some of our students are wearing shirts. Um, and, uh, and I want to challenge you. Not everyone is, but I, w- I want to give you a challenge uh, that I was thinking about this weekend. I remember a while back, Jimbo shared a, a stat. I'm going to butcher this stat. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it's something like um, of the kids who stay in church after they leave high school, it's like 90, 90% of them or something like that have five adult like role models or adult uh, Christians who are like pouring into them. Um, and I, so I want to challenge you today uh, to find a student and just introduce yourself. Uh, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to find out everything about them today, but just, uh, yeah, introduce yourself. Uh, because I, I'm here, and I, I, they, the church even gives me some money to do what I'm doing, but I'm still only one of those five, right? Um, so, something that, it takes a village, right? Um, because cause we can't do events like this every weekend. I cannot drink any more Mountain Dew or eat any more donuts. Um, it's not that I literally can't do this every weekend. So, so I, need, I need you guys, and we need you guys. Um, so let's dive in. We just read from John chapter 1, or John 21, but I want to read a verse from John 1 real quick that's going to be uh, really the springboard um, from, from which we launch today, uh, from which, uh, like, in, in the way that we understand John 21. Um, I'm going to read it from, I'm going to read it from the NIV. Sorry to mix it up. Um, it's, it's translated kind of weird, uh, so I think NIV, from what I've studied, translates well, gets the idea across. Uh, this is the idea. Um, so yeah, you have to listen, because I guess it's not up there. But it says this, that John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So I'm going to read that one more time. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. All right, and this is John 1. This is John's famous prologue. Uh, I wasn't a, even a member of the church when, when Jimbo was preaching through this. This is how long we've been in John. So, so maybe you remember this, or maybe that's so long ago. It, it begin, but it begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus and how, how Jesus is active in creation, how he's equal with God. And he ends this prologue by saying this, that no one has ever seen God, but through, through this person, Jesus, we know who God is. And, and this idea is really like throughout Scripture. So Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And, and Colossians 1 says uh, just a similar idea to this, that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That though, though we can't see God, Jesus has revealed him, or God has revealed himself by taking on flesh. And so the basic idea here is that Jesus is the clearest revelation we have of who God is, of God's nature. And I had a professor once say, uh, he, he said, you want to know who God is? Just look at Jesus. S- simple as that. And, and today we're going to look at a story about Peter. When Peter's just and the throes of guilt and shame. Peter has failed Jesus. Uh, and I want to ask the question, uh, how does God interact with our failure and with our shame? And I want to do that by just looking at Jesus and looking how Jesus uh, 
interacts with Peter. And I think through, through looking at this relationship between Peter and Jesus, we'll actually um, learn something about our own relationship with God when, when we're in times like this of, of failure and shame. Uh, so my main idea is Christ is our gracious redeemer when we fail. Therefore, run to him. Or just run to him. It's imperative. Uh, so I have three points today, and they're all using alliteration from my dear friend Chris Litton, because you guys, I think you guys know, that's kind of his thing. He loves it. Um, so our text begins um, implicitly with the reality of our failure. That's my first point. Um, even before we get into the story today, we got some context, right? We've seen passages uh, leading up to this that Jimbo has preached where Jesus and the disciples have had some interaction. But we haven't seen any face-to-face time with, with Peter and Jesus, okay? And this is important because if you remember, right before Jesus' death, we see Peter deny Jesus. And, and that hasn't been dealt with yet. So if you haven't been with us um, The night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, he's speaking very ominously, and he's talking about, I'm going to go away. And and Peter picks up on this and says, hey, look, whatever happens, like, you know, I'd die for you. And and Jesus harshly kind of comes back and says, no, in fact, you're going to deny me three times. Um, And sure enough, it happens just as Jesus says. Um, And, uh, sorry. Joe, maybe think of something. Uh, It happens happens just as Jesus says. Um, So so in this passage, uh, Peter's failure is like assumed knowledge, right? This this is the context. If we zoom out, this is kind of what's going on. It's the elephant in the room, all right? Um, And and you may have been in this situation before where you have a parent or you have a teacher or, or someone like that who you failed and you know you have to go to them. And you know, you know that tension, you know that feeling. So I had an experience in high school. Uh, I played high school soccer one year. I was not good at all. I was horrible. Uh, but I played keeper. I could barely kick the ball, but I'm long. So, so I was on the team. That, that's the basic idea. Um, but I wasn't very good at kicking. So, so one game, I make a save with my long arms, and I run out, and I go to punt it and I whiff it horribly. I, I barely make contact with the ball, and it flies off directly out of bounds. I think it actually even went backwards. Um, and in that moment, 18-year-old Caleb had a moment of weakness, and he yelled out a word that is not good. And I, I can let you guys can use your imagination as to what word that was, but uh, this, this is a big deal in a high school soccer game because the thing with high school soccer is no one is in the stadium. No one is around. No one goes to high school soccer games. Has anyone here ever been to a high school soccer game? Wow. I expected, I expected maybe Jimbo because he played, but that was it. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Well, because here in Florida, high school soccer is a winter sport. So it's like 20 degrees outside. And, and there are like three parents and like a, a one girlfriend over there. Um, so, so as I yell that word out, I, I kind of come back down to reality and, and realize that my father is sitting over there. And my ordained, like, pastor father, and I know he raised me better than that, right? Uh, so I knew, going back to him, 
after this game, there was that tension. And, and I knew I had to face him. And, and this is kind of the same thing that Peter's walking through right now. And, and, and I think this is the same tension we kind of find ourselves at times in our relationship with Christ. We, I think we know what this feels like. And, and I think uh, this is true because we're in the process called sanctification. All right? The, and this, just, this is a fancy word for being made holy. Right, this thing that, that God does in us through the work of the Holy Spirit where we, we start to look more like Jesus. And, and the, Bible uses, the Bible uses three words to describe uh, just the process of salvation. So I'm just going to roll through those real quick because I think it's important uh, to realize as we talk about sin and, and our failure. The first is uh, justification. So justification is, is what we think of when we talk about someone getting saved, someone uh, coming to faith in Jesus. It's when, it's when someone... Uh, puts their faith in Christ, repents of their sins, um, receives the Holy Spirit, and, and is saved and is forgiven of their sins. And from there, you enter into this process of sanctification that I'm talking about. And this is, this is through the work of the Holy Spirit, we become, uh, we become holy and we become more like Jesus. And, and that culminates in glorification. So we have justification, sanctification, and glorification. And glorification is this final salvation, this final removal of sin. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, that in the blink of an eye, when Jesus comes back, uh, we'll be changed, we'll be transformed. And that the perishable will put on the imperishable, and the mortal will put on the immortal. We'll have these glorified bodies. It's kind of the end of that salvation process. You don't have to be saved from anything else then. So it's so justification, sanctification, glorification. And now I mention this because we find ourselves in the in-between. We find ourselves in this process of sanctification, because because justification happens at one time, right? When you put your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, you're saved, and, and right, Jesus is going to return in the blink of an eye, will be glorified. But uh, sanctification is different. Sanctification is is messy. It's work. Uh, it's why in Philippians one six, Paul says this: that I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I think all three are kind of at least implicitly in here, that, that this work of sanctification has a beginning. Uh, but it's work, and, and it's tough, and we take steps forward, and then we take steps back. And, and we, we have the Spirit of God in us, but ultimately we still have to wrestle with the flesh because we live in this in-between. Because just like Peter, we're going to fail. We deny Jesus. We, we can't control our tongue at times. Um, and I don't think I need to really convince you that Christians are going to struggle with sin. I think you guys feel the weight of that in this room. Um, and, and if you want to talk more about that, that idea of justification, sanctification, glorification, any of that, I'll be at What's Cooking tomorrow with our responsible pastors who are there every week at 7 o'clock. Um, role models right there. Um, but so, so if, this, if the reality is that we're going to fail, um, then I want to ask, what should our response be? Because I think... I think Peter responds in two ways. So let's talk about the res- our response in failure. Let's start with uh, verse 1 through 3. So after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, uh, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were, were together. Simon Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. 
And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this is where I think, I think Peter has two responses in his failure. And I think one's wrong and one's right. And I think he begins, this is a wrong response. When he says, I'm going to go fishing. Because this is actually a sad, a sad <coughs> gracious, this is a sad verse when we zoom out. When we zoom out and think about the story of Peter, the story of Jesus, because, because we know from the other gospel accounts, when Jesus calls his disciples, you remember what he says? He says, hey, I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. He, he, gives them, he gives them a new task and a new calling. And it, it says that they dropped their nets and they followed him. And, and that's true that they dropped their nets, but it, it also represents like symbolically that we're not going to fish anymore. We have a new calling. And just like Jimbo told us about last week, uh, in John 20, oh, when Jesus appears to them, he says, just as the Father sent me, now I send you. So Peter has just been commissioned with a, with a new calling. He is now um, to, he is sent out by Jesus, yet we see him fishing here. We see him uh, revert back to his old way of life. So, so I, think, I think in his shame, we see him re- revert back to his old way of life. And, and I don't think that's right, right? So it's, because he says, when I, he says, well, I failed Jesus, but, but at least I can still fish. And, and he denies that calling that Jesus has put on his life because he's back fishing. And, and uh, we can assume that Peter just feels um, disqualified from ministry at this time. So, and I think this is, this is a lot like us because in our failure, we tend to revert back to kind of what's natural, to our, to our old way of life. This is why Tim Tebow is never going to play quarterback again in the NFL because he throws kind of weird, and, and they try to tell him, no, you need to throw like this. And the argument's always, well, when a 300-pound person's running at you, you're just going to throw it like you've always thrown it. Uh, and it's, it's, why, it's why my friend my friend Matt, he used to always get in arguments with his mom during college. Uh, like, in college, it's weird. You have this freedom, but at the same time, you're still kind of tied to your parents. I remember having to call my mom because I couldn't find my birth certificate, things like that. Uh, so I, Matt was one of my best friends, and I'd be with him all the time. So I'd be around when his mom would call, and they'd have these conversations. And both Matt's parents are not from America. They speak Spanish in the home. Okay, so, so Matt and his mom couldn't have a 25-second conversation without arguing. And, and it would begin very cordial. It's still always tense, weird. Uh, it, would, it would be tense, but it'd be, okay, all right. And, and the, but the further along they go in this conversation, you'd hear like a phrase flip out in Spanish. And, and then a little more Spanish. And by the end, they're both yelling at each other in Spanish. And I don't know what they're saying, so I'm freaked out because um, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. Uh, but, but the idea is that uh, whenever, Matt would say, whenever his mom gets mad, she, she goes in Spanish because this is what's natural. And this is just uh, her, her natural way uh, of expressing herself. So, so this, it's the same idea that, that when we're pushed, when there's this negativity, that we revert back to our old ways. And, and the Bible actually has, has a lot to say about falling back into old habits. Because if you think about early Christianity, like when Paul is writing, uh, Christianity is a new movement. So, so we have the, the luxury of having this 2,000-year-old movement. Our theology is pretty much worked out. But for the people Paul is writing to, a lot of these people are coming out of Judaism, coming out of paganism, and there's this temptation to, to fall back in to, to the old way they used to do things or to see the world 
in the way that, that those old systems would say the world works. An example of this is in Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there with me. Ephesians 5, Paul is talking to a group of pagan people. Um, and our General Electric Power Company. That's how I remember Galatians, Ephesians. I don't know if you guys know that one. It's helpful. Um, so Ephesians 5, I'm going to read verse 5 through 9. Paul says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, or kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and is right and is true. So Paul reminds them that, that they're not sons of darkness anymore, but they're, they're children of the light. Because Paul sees this temptation, right? He says, he says don't, don't associate with those things of darkness anymore. Don't partake in them. Walk as children of the light. And Paul says this time and time again. He does this in other books as well. Is, is he grounds our actions in our identity. All right? So here he says, you're children of the light, so walk like children of the light. And elsewhere he says, are right, you guys have been given the Holy Spirit, therefore you need to walk in the Spirit. Do the, do the fruit of the Spirit. Um, he grounds your actions in our identity. And it's like I heard an a, uh, interview with this writer-director, Quentin Tarantino. Um, I don't condone everything he's ever created, but He's, he's obviously very creative, and he, uh, he's, he's so creative that this interviewer was asking, these stories that you come up with, uh, they blow my mind, and these characters are weird. What's your, what's your method? How do you come up with this? And I thought the answer was really interesting. He says, okay, so I just get my character, start there, and I ask questions. I say, who is this person's parents? Where did he go to school? Where did he grow up? Uh, what, what's his favorite food? And he just, like, he just digs in on this character. And then he does the same thing with all his characters. And he says, I create these characters, and then I put them in situations, then I just write down what happens. Because these characters are so crazy that, that really the work is, is defining their identity, and everything else, the plot and all that, is just going to work out. And I think that's kind of what, what Paul wants us to get when he says, you're children of the light. So, so walk as children of the light, because he, he understands that your actions flow out of that. Your actions flow out of, out of your identity. Uh, we are children of God, saved by grace. If we understand that we've been saved by grace, then we're going to be gracious. Uh, Chris, I like he says this, he says that forgiven people forgive people. And, and that's just, it's going to flow out of who you are. That's why uh, the proverb says, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of life. That, that your life flows out of the inside. And so, so Paul thinks that the antidote maybe for, for falling back into this old life is, is knowing your identity, knowing who you are as a child of God. So, so we've seen Peter revert back to this old way of life. But, but let's see what happens when, when Jesus shows up, because I think this is where Peter gets it right. So let's read 4 through 8. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, 
Children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came to the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. So Jesus, Jesus' identity is revealed here when, when he uh, accomplishes this miracle, and he, he gives them, provides these fish for them. And, and Peter responds correctly here. And, and this is such a Peter way to act, right? He casts them into the sea. He recognizes, there's Christ. I'm going to go, I'm going to run after him. And, and and we've seen Peter be so impulsive. If, if you've been with us in John, remember he's the guy who cuts Malchus's ear off when Jesus is getting arrested? He whips out a sword and cuts this guy's ear off. It's crazy. And, and there are other times where he just spouts things off. He says things, and, and Jesus rebukes him. So, so I think we give Peter a hard time, but, but there are other times when Peter's impulsiveness, or uh, there's probably a positive way to say impulsiveness. I just don't know it. Um, but this... This passion that he has uh, when, when he's right, when he's right to do that. He's right to run after the Lord. Um, and, and this is so different from my natural response. Uh, maybe some people in here agree with this. I'm not sure. I, but the, my natural response in times of failure, in times of shame, like if I've fallen into sin, is always to, uh, to go numb or to, to kind of hide, right? Um, I shut myself off, and part of that is because I, f- I feel, I mean, as I thought about this, like, why do I do that? Um, often I wait, I try to wait out those feelings until I can go to God kind of in my own righteousness. Like, like when I, so I can, I can wait on those feelings of shame and guilt to go away so that I can actually go to God and, because I can offer something. But, but that's wrong, right? Because we have nothing to offer God. And, and if you read in Hebrews 10, um, man, I love this passage um, about the confidence that we have, where that confidence comes from. Hebrews ten nineteen says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, we, we don't go to God in our own self-confidence. We, we don't wait out those feelings of shame because we know that, that we go to God not in confidence in ourselves, but in confidence in Christ, right? It says it, it's through the blood of Jesus. It's through his flesh. It's through the way that he opened up to us. And I love how it ends. It says, for he who promised is faithful. Right? Well, we, we put our faith in the faithfulness of God. Like that's what faithfulness means, that, that God, he's worthy of me putting my faith in. Therefore, I don't have to hide in shame and guilt. I can go to him because he's faithful. Um, and this is where our confidence comes from. But, but I love that, that the author doesn't end there. He says in 24, And let us consider how to stir one another up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as the day draws near. So I, I don't know if I ever realized, to be honest, like that these passages were so close together. Like I've heard, I've heard this verse, like this is why you should go to church. You need to stir one another up. And I've heard this about, about this confidence that Christ gives us. But, but these ideas are connected, right? That, that I have confidence to approach and my confidence is increased as I'm stirred up by my brothers and sisters in Christ. See, isolation is never the answer uh, to growth in the Christian life. You're not going to find that in Scripture. I think there's a country song, Me and God, or something like that. It's kind of about Josh Turner. Hey, he has a beautiful baritone bass voice. I love him. But uh, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not just me and God, right? It is, it is me, God, and my community, and my believers who are going to stir, stir me up to love and good deeds, right? And, and we need these deep relationships, especially when we talk about, we talk about like failure and shame, because I've never like met somebody. I, I met a guy today who I hadn't met uh, here at church, and I didn't walk up to him and say, hey there, my name's Caleb. Sometimes I feel like an inadequate husband. <laughs> he was, okay, I'm going to leave. Um, or, you know, you don't say, hey, there, there's sin I have from decades ago that I still feel shame about. This is not something you lead with. You may be, like, you may be impressed by that person's transparency or something, but ultimately you're going to be a little terrified. That, that's just not, not normal. That's something we kind of save for, for those deep relationships. So here's my shameless plug for our Bible study groups. Uh, this is, you need these close relationships, and this is the way that our church helps facilitate that, right? And it's not just about having Christians that are friends, like that, friends that are also Christians, because I have a lot of Christian friends. I went to like a Christian school, but, but I didn't do life with all those people. I didn't, I didn't share those, those failures and those shames with every single person. So, so I could have gone to this Christian college, had all these Christians, brothers and sisters, and still not lived like in biblical community, even though there are all these Christians around me. And I think we do that a lot. We come in and go to church, but, but we're not really plugged in to, to people that I'm doing life with, people that I can share those kind of things with. And, and Jimbo and I were even talking about, in our passage today, with, uh, with Peter. So, so Peter's failed. Peter failed Jesus. And, and the other disciples know what happened. They were there when Peter said, hey, I'll die for you. And they were there like, well, Peter, you're still here. You're, uh, you didn't die with Jesus. Uh, but they're with him. They're with him when he goes, they, I'm going fishing, they say. All right, brother, we'll go with you. There, there's, it, it seems that they're just walking through this with him. So this idea that we have confidence, but our confidence is stirred up by community. So, so if our response to Jesus is, 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 to, is to run, is to go without delay like Peter, to just headlong go after Christ and not, not fall back into shame and not hide like is often, often my, my tendency, uh, but to run after him and we need others, I think what we're going to find is that uh, Christ is our gracious redeemer. He is the redeemer of our failure. So let's check in uh, verse 9 and continue this, uh, this passage. It says, When they had got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was, net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. So with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is the end of our passage for the day, but it's not the end of the entire story. So Jimbo is going to wrap up this story and the entire Gospel of John next week, and we're going to see that face-to-face interaction with, with Peter and Jesus. But even in this little passage, there's just so much grace that Jesus pours out on them. Peter arrives, and Jesus says, come have breakfast, let's eat. And I think we've talked about this other times, like in this context, in this time, meals meant a lot. Meals really said something about your relationship with that person. So, so when the Pharisees are finding things wrong with Jesus, and they're accusing him, one of the things they say is, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Like he associates with those people, and therefore, he is like on equal level with them. He's as evil as they are. And and it's still kind of like that today where our meals mean something because if you went out to a romantic restaurant and saw me alone uh, with, like, a woman that wasn't my wife, you would not think, well, they're just enjoying a steak dinner together. You you would not say that. You would, you know, something's not right here. And you'd call me out because that's not right. Um, Because meals still carry that weight. Right, they still. We normally only eat with like family, close friends. Um, that's why it's good. Let's include other people in our meals, and grow our community. Uh, that's another sermon. Um, so when 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 they come up, Jesus says, "Let's eat." And, and this is grace because He's extending hospitality by offering this meal. There's this this reconciliation of their relationship. He because these other disciples they abandoned Jesus too. Other than John, remember it's the girls. It's the ladies at, at the cross, the ladies and John. And these other disciples and Peter have abandoned Jesus at his darkest hour. But when they come up, he says, hey, let's have a meal. We're good. So, so there's just grace all over this. And, and Jesus, he, I mean, he cooks for them. He extends his hospitality. And he's even the one that provided the fish, right? Remember? You know, they didn't catch anything when they went fishing. And, and what's cool I don't know if this is a thing, but he doesn't remind them of that, too. He says, bring some of the fish that you guys just caught. He, he, he says, he doesn't say, hey, that's my fish. I caught those. But even that's kind of just some grace right there, some humility. Um, but, but my favorite kind of whisper of grace in this, in this passage is the mention of, of where it takes place, at this charcoal fire. And maybe some of you guys remember where we've seen a charcoal fire before in this, uh, in this gospel. I don't, it's not a common phrase used in, used in the Bible. Uh, but we see it in John 18, 17 through 18. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So, uh, so the gospel writers use a, a small economy of words. Like if you just think about how big our, our gospels are, 
uh, like Luke writes about Jesus' birth, through death, resurrection, ascension. He writes all that, and it's still just like this big. So it's not, it's not Tolstoy, right? It's War and Peace. It's not Webster's Dictionary or anything. It's, it's concise. And, and since this is the way that they wrote, every detail really counts, especially in John. As you looked at the, uh, the thesis statement for John last week, remember what he says? He says, Jesus did a lot of other things, but I write these things so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. John has a, a reason for the way he shapes this together. So this charcoal fire, there's a connection he's drawing there. It's like in, in Star Wars. If, Star Wars is kind of all the rage right now. Uh, it's back with, you know, episode seven and stuff. But there, there's these connections between these two characters, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, and his son, Luke Skywalker. And you, they, they allude to it the whole time so that when you find out that they're father and son, you kind of feel like an idiot because they talk about it the whole time. They say, oh, man, uh, he, was, he was a great pilot. And they're like, Luke is a great pilot. And, and, and there are all these connections that, that they draw between these two, these two characters. And they both get their hands chopped off. Like, very explicit, like, connections that should be made, that you should, you should see these two characters, and you should say that these guys go together. I'm supposed to compare and contrast them. And, and I think that's what John does here. John mentions this charcoal fire so that we'll remember that what Peter's walking into, that the last time Peter saw this charcoal fire, he had denied Christ. And, and I may be reading too much into this, but, but we see that, that Jesus is using this charcoal fire to cook this meal. Right? So it's the very symbol that should be reminding us of Peter's lowest point. It's the very symbol that should be reminding us of the time that Peter denied Jesus, this great sin that he had. But, but instead, Jesus is using this to serve him. Jesus is, is redeeming this image, and he's, he's redeeming this sin uh, of Peter and Peter's failure. And just what a reminder that, that God takes the broken things that we have and he can use them and he can, he can redeem them. And you see, this, you see this idea all throughout scripture. In Genesis 50, 20, uh, when Joseph, I think I mentioned this verse like every time I've ever preached. This is like my favorite verse in, in the entire Bible. Uh, so Joseph is standing before his brothers who sold him into slavery uh, who left him for, well, left him for dead. Then they decided, hey, why, sh- why should we kill him? Let's make some money off this. So they, they've done him wrong. And, and when Joseph is in the position to completely come down hard on him, he, he says this, that as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So like that, this idea that God took this very evil thing you did to me and now, like, look at all the good that's come from it. And we've talked about in our Bible study groups, uh, I know as the youth, as we've gone through the Old Testament, we've just pointed to just how horrible the people are that God chooses to use, right? That, that Abraham, like, gives his wife to Pharaoh, or, or that, that Jacob's name means deceiver, and he deceives his entire family. And he's constantly in this, in this, uh, this cycle of, of deceiving people to get his own way. And that Moses, who's like the, the superhero of, of the Old Testament, uh, is a murderer and a fugitive. And these are the people that God uses. God redeemed um, the brokenness uh, in these people's lives. Um, and even in the end times, uh, we were talking about this the other day, that 
in, in Revelation 20 and 21, the new heavens and new earth, Jesus is there and Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. I'm, I'm, wiping, I'm wiping this away and I'm going to make, a, make a, all new things. But he says, no, I'm recreating, I'm redeeming fallen creation. That's why in Romans 8, it says that, that creation is groaning for the, uh, you know, what does it say? This idea that, that the sons of God would be, it's like adoption of the sons of God. But I may have butchered that. But the idea is that, that the, the redemption of creation, the redemption of, of God's people actually go together and that they happen at the same time. And God redeems even fallen creation. He reverses the curse, every aspect of the curse in Genesis 3. Not just the sin that's in man, but every aspect of the curse God will redeem and make new. And, and this is just how God works, right? Uh, he redeems the junk in our lives. And it's not even just how God works, but it's just who God is. This is time and time again, this is what you see God doing, taking broken things and using them for good. So my, my appeal to you today is that, uh, that you're not too broken for God to use. And that, that if, you, uh, if you're in shame and guilt and failure, run to Christ. Because just like Peter, you're going to find that God wants that relationship. He's going to say, hey, come eat. We're good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for, for this truth from your word that that we're not too far gone, that though we feel shame and brokenness and it's ever before us, you, just in your wisdom and your sovereignty, choose to use us. God, we love you. I pray that this would just uh, soak into our lives and just change the way that we see, uh, see people and see you. I praise in your name.